Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20. As we walk through this text, we're going to see how Jesus' life equation is so different than our own often is. Jesus, in a couple of statements, teaches us that the last will be first, and this is how grace works. Guys, my, uh, there it goes. I'm not sure. We'll, we'll, we'll see how this goes. Took, took me a few tries there. The last will be first, and this is how grace works. It's a different equation than, than we often think of. We're going to see this in Matthew 20 together. Grace comes to a particular kind of person, and as we walk through this text, we'll see that grace comes to the humble and hopeless to the humble and hopeless. Matthew 20, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one's hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. We'll stop there for now. Jesus loves to tell stories to make a point. And the best stories are stories that we can kind of place ourselves in. And if you imagine for a moment that you're one of these workers, it's easy to feel the injustice of what happens here, isn't it? Now, imagine with me for a minute that you're a faithful, long-time employee, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, you've been working hard at the same company, you've kind of worked your way up, and you've advanced, and as you've done this, you've, begin, you've be, become rewarded for your faithfulness, for your hard work. Uh, but last fall, the boss's nephew showed up, and the nephew walks in the door, and he immediately is given everything that you have earned in over a decade's worth of work. And one day, you and Joe, the nephew, you're sitting in the break room and you're just talking, shooting the breeze, and you begin to talk about money. And you find out that not only has he received the position that you've received, he makes more money than you do. Fifteen minutes before, you were pretty content. Now you're ticked. Because this dude, I mean, he shows up at 10, leaves at 2, takes an hour and a half lunch break, you don't see him, and he's making money like you're making, and it's taking you a long time to get there. Now, in this moment, there's a little bit of you that would see that the injustice of this, and so you say, you know what, 
I've been here a long time. I have a good relationship with my boss. I'm going to go talk to him. And so you go and you, you ask him, you say, what's going on here? I want to raise. He said, that's none of your business. And at this point, it really begins to burn you. And you say, how is that none of my business? He said, you agreed to work here. We pay you a fair wage. What I pay my nephew is none of your concern. And at this point, man, it's really rubbing you the wrong way. And now you're not happy to be working here anymore. You feel the burn. You feel the injustice of it. You feel the anger of it because you're not being treated fairly. And that's a little bit what Jesus is getting at here. Now, there are two perspectives in this story. One is boss. The other is employee. Now, the employee feels the injustice of it, don't you? I mean, if, if you're the person under the man, if you're the person working and, 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 and slaving and working hard, it, you, you expect at some level to be rewarded for that. But there's also the perspective of the boss. And as an employee, you can't demand from the boss what the boss can only freely give. And that's where we find ourselves in this story. You got this 12-hour workday, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., some people show up at 6 a.m. and they work all day. Some others show up at 9 o'clock. Some roll in at noon. Some roll in at 3 o'clock. But the ones that really, really burn it show up at 5 o'clock, work till 6, and get paid like you did for showing up first thing in the morning. I mean, if you sit and you let the weight of this feet, I mean, imagine that you stink, and these guys, you know, they barely got any beads of sweat on them. They're clean. You've been working all day long. This story is about the nature of grace. And the thing about grace is, we've got equations about how life works. But Jesus makes the point that his math doesn't work like our math. And grace inherently isn't fair. It's not fair. Now, we're clued in immediately to the fact that the boss, not the employee, is the perspective that we're, we're supposed to, to chime in here with. Verse 1, we read that the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. So we're trying to understand things from his perspective. And what is it about this master that we need to understand? Now, there's a clue to the meaning in this parable. The book ends here. So if you look up just a verse, the end of Matthew chapter 19, you see this, and then you also see it in verse 16. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Then in verse 16, so the last will be first, and the first last. Jesus is making a point about grace. And what is it about grace? Grace, by definition, is something that isn't deserved. It's not earned. It's not something that anyone can demand. It, by definition, cannot be something you ask for with any expectation in return because grace, by definition, is something you can't earn. It's unmerited, it's undeserved, it's unearned. Now, sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously, we think of life this way. You work really hard, you do good things, and God blesses you. Well, it's true that there are causes and effects in this life, as in there's a certain kind of way of living that typically produces certain outcomes, and there's another kind of a way of living that produces different, maybe not so good outcomes. But let's say you work really hard, and you make a lot of money. 
Well, in one sense, we could say that money is a blessing for your hard work, couldn't we? Like, you've worked hard, you've been faithful, and, and something comes to you. Well, the dangerous thing is that's often, as well, how we think about grace. That's not how grace works. Now, it's possible to get so caught up in the details of the story that we miss Jesus' point. It's not about what we earn. It's about what the master gives. It's told from his perspective. Verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? (laughs) It's like, dude, you could think of a better way to say that. I mean, there's a better way to have this conversation. I mean, it seems like your EQ is, is a little bit challenged here. Maybe there's a better way to help that employee see, you know, that you're just being nice to these people. Now, we believe that we're saved by grace alone. But even for those of us who understand this clearly, there's a part of us in the back of our minds that wants to think that there's something somewhere in us that means that grace is something we deserve. But this parable demonstrates that grace is never earned. It's only freely given. Perhaps you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. You see, grace is something that can never be earned. You can't earn God's favor. It's only a gift. Verse 9 goes on to say, it's not a result of works. It's not something you do. Now, look, it's one thing to hear this. It's another thing to understand, to feel what this means. God doesn't save good church-going people. God saves people who recognize that their spiritual bank account is empty. They don't come offering anything to God. They know what Romans 3 says, there's no one truly good. In God's eyes, there's no one who can measure up to God's standards. We know that when God saves us, there's nothing in us that tells us that he should save us. There's nothing in us that deserves this grace. Well, why is this important? Ephesians 2 goes on to say, so that no one would boast. Because God knows our proud, boastful hearts. If God saved me because I'm good, I'd tell everyone God likes me because I'm good. But grace, the point of grace is that God saves us when we're not good. When we're sinners justly condemned under the law of God, God saves us for his glory because we're running from him and then he gets the credit. He gets the praise. Now you may have gone to church your entire life. You may understand the culture. You may understand the lingo. You may even teach or have taught Sunday school. But if you've never recognized what the old hymn rock of ages says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's it. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Thou, I to thy fountain fly. Help me, Savior, or I die. All those pictures, naked, helpless, empty, are demonstrating the fact that apart from God's grace, we have no hope. We come to God with nothing. And so 
if you know church, if you know the culture, but you've never recognized that you are spiritually bankrupt, you may not know Jesus. Would you turn from your sin and trust him? Well, before we move on, let's think about how this also informs our view of ourselves and of other people. Now, there's kind of two ways of approaching, I'll say, life in here. There's one way that looks at it and says, in, in these four walls, it's safe, it's clean, and, and all the people out there have problems, and all the good people are in here. Now, if you stay here long, you know that's not true, but sometimes we might think that. Uh, recently, so Disney Plus came out recently, and, and with it, there are a lot of classic Disney movies, that, some of them which I haven't seen in decades. There was a, a movie that uh, when I was a kid we'd watch called The Love Bug. Have any of you ever seen that? Okay, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of silly, but it's a classic. It's kind of fun. So we watched it with our kids recently, and I was reminded of a, of a scene in there. So it's about this car that has his own mind and does, you know, he's like got a soul and does, does whatever he wants. And so he locks these people in the car, and they pull up at this drive-in diner, and this lady is screaming out the window at the car next to him. She's like, help me, I'm a prisoner, I'm locked in. And uh, there are a couple of hippies sitting there, and like one slurping on a milkshake, and he's like, we all prisoners, chicky baby, we all locked in. <laughs> and it, it, it's like, we're all locked in here, and if we stay locked in here, we're safe, and if we don't let anything touch us, you know, we'll be okay. And it's true that the church ought to be a family of people who look out and care for one another. Amen. But it's also true that we are all sinners. And because of that, we ought to be humbled by God's grace. We recognize we are no better than anyone else. We're not good, we're not better, but we are rescued. Rescued by God's grace. This is why when you read Paul's writings, he doesn't say, I'm the chief of Christians. He doesn't claim to be the best Christian, I'm the chief saint, I'm the big dog. He says he's the biggest what? The chief of sinners. That's Paul's calling card. Because Paul understood grace. Because Paul understood that by recognizing his sin before a holy God, that's the key to life and worship. That's the key to knowing Christ. And this produces in us a heart of humility and gratitude. That's why we call it a culture of grace. Because when we understand that we are sinners who need God's grace, then we're just beginning to understand what it means to have a relationship with him through faith in Christ and nothing else. Grace isn't fair. It's not something you can earn. It's not something that if you work harder than someone else, more comes to you. It's something that God gives freely. So you move from this illustration to a prophecy in verse 17. Would you read along there? And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Now one reason that we misunderstand the nature of grace is because we deserve something. We don't understand what it truly costs. But Jesus here says that grace is costly. Jesus is on his way to die. He's not on his way to get accolades and glory. And as he travels 
with his disciples, he takes some time to try to prepare them for what's to come. And he tells them he's going to be mocked, he's going to be tortured, and he's going to die. The disciples have spent three years with Jesus, and yet they don't clearly see yet. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. And this man's story is interesting because when Jesus heals him, he touches his eyes and he asks him, can you see? And he said, well, I can see, but not clearly. Everyone looks like trees walking around. And then Jesus touches his eyes again, and then he can see clearly. I think that's a little bit of what's going on with the disciples here. They can see, but they can't see clearly. They can't see what Jesus is really doing. Their sight is blurry. They know Jesus is a king, but they have a theology of glory. And when they're all in on words like glory and kingdom and heaven, but suffering and death and mocking and flogging, I'm out. They sign up for one but not the other, and yet Jesus makes clear that the glory of heaven is impossible without the pain of the cross. The cross precedes the crown. The Christian life is the way of the cross. Grace will cost Jesus his life, and he says it means the same thing for us. Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his life will find it, and whoever will save his life will lose it. Grace is costly. The disciples don't yet understand how costly. Look with me now at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? They said to him, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. For those who truly understand grace, we know that grace is humbling. Jesus teaches the disciples over and over again that following him means we must humble ourselves, empty ourselves, die to ourselves. And over and over again, the disciples completely miss the point. We've seen them arguing before about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now we take it to the next level. A number of years ago, as part of what I did in life, I helped out, I assistant coach, coached a varsity soccer team. And sometimes it's hard dealing with um, young people who aren't very self-aware. You know, they see themselves as the next Pele or Cristiano Ronaldo or some kind of world, you know, and it's like, you know, you, know, you deserve time on the bench and maybe you get, you know, 10 minutes, and, and they just don't see themselves that way. But if there's anything harder than dealing with a young person who lacks self-awareness, it's dealing with parents who lack self-awareness. You know, they got scholarship, they got money, they got all kinds of things on their mind. And here, Mama Bear shows up. And James and John, I mean, they are 
Pele. They are Cristiano Ronaldo. They are Messi. I mean, they are the top of the top. The mother, verse 20, of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. Now, this is mom. Mom's showing up here. Now, it's interesting because her physical posture is humble. She knelt before him. But on the inside, she's standing up. She's proud and selfish because what does she say? Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one of your right hand and one of your She's giving him orders. She's kneeling ostensibly before the king and telling him what to do. Now, this is, this is how it can be. Well, in a few days, Jesus himself will be high and lifted up. But he'll be hanging bloody and beaten on a cross. And there will be someone on his right hand and someone on his left hand. But their criminals hung with him to die. And so Jesus asks, are you ready for what's to come? Are you ready to suffer? You see, in the Gospels, when we read about the cup, the cup always refers to the suffering of Christ. Lord, take this cup from me. This cup is about to come to me. This cup refers to the suffering of Christ under the wrath of God. He says, are you ready to suffer? And the disciples say, we're ready to rule. They don't understand what Jesus is asking. James and John, they think they're ready. At the end of chapter 19, chapter before this, Jesus has promised that the twelve will rule with him when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But here he says, the Father determines who sits where. Verse 23 in this passage, to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, lest we be too hard on James and John, think they've got some corner on pride. Verse 24 tells us everyone else is just as bad. They're all mad because <laughs> James and John beat them to it. You know, their mom showed up first. But Jesus teaches us something about the nature of authority in his kingdom. Now, we're right now in the midst of the NFL playoffs. So this week is conference championship weekend, NFC, AFC playoffs. When someone scores a touchdown, what does that look like? Rip, you know, rip Superman's cape off, little chest thump. I mean, we celebrate. We pound our chest because we're amazing. We pound our chest because we're the top dog. We think authority is about being in charge, but Jesus says it's just the opposite. Being the chief authority means you're actually the biggest servant. Verse 26, whoever would be great must be your servant. Verse 27, whoever would be first must be your slave. Well, where does this kind of humble authority, this servant leadership come from? Verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. How did Jesus lead? Jesus led by giving his life for those he served. Let's think about, for a minute, what this means for the church. Jesus, Ephesians 4 tells us, give, gives pastors to his church to lead the church with the word of God. And then 1 Peter 5 teases, us, teases this out for us a little bit. Peter writes there, I exhort the elders, it's another word for pastors, I exhort the elders and pastors among you as a fellow elder. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you 
exercising oversight. There's authority. Not domineering, but being example, being examples to the flock. There's humility. So pastors should lead with real spiritual authority, but that actually means, ironically, they're to humbly serve. Like Jesus gave his life for the sheep. And we're going to do a little uh, Ashley River Church history here, and for those of you who don't know this, you're going to know it now, and some of you remember it like it was yesterday, but in, in, the, in the early 80s, our, our church went through a battle about this. How is it that shepherds shepherd sheep? How is it pastors relate to a congregation? And a pastor used authority in an overreaching, abusive way. And there are ripple effects in our congregation and in our community to, to this day from that. I mean, some of what we're doing today is, is, is working on this. I mean, more than 30 years later, we're attempting to establish healthy relationships between pastors and congregation because we missed this point. Now, if you'll bear with me for just a minute, it got real quiet here, uh, but if, if you'll bear with me for just a minute, I'd like to commend you as a congregation. I walk in the door, and some of y'all are well more than twice my age. I don't offer that as an insult, but as a commendation. You've walked with Jesus a long time. You've seen people a lot smarter, a lot wiser, a lot more gifted than I come and, and go. But what I've observed is it's never easy working through something like this. We've always got bits and pieces of culture and, and history that we carry with us. But occasionally people will say, you know, what's been the most encouraging thing about your time here? And bar none, the most encouraging thing has been seeing the people of God's response to God's word. And have seen it consistently now for a year and a half. And also sensing from God's people a real desire to follow the Lord's leading together. Now, I know that part of this is unlike Jesus. You know, when, when he offers himself to serve, he's not going to stumble. He, he's always going to do that perfectly. He's always going to lay down his life perfectly for the sheep. And there's no pastor that'll do that. We'll stumble, we'll fall, sometimes flat on our face. But here's my aspiration, and the aspiration for any pastor the Lord brings here, coming not to be served, but to serve. To give our lives for the bride of Christ, as Christ gave his life. That's what we aspire to, is servant leadership, dirtiest towel leadership, washing feet leadership. But before we move on, let's back out of church for a minute and, and think about another important area of spiritual leadership. Now, men, particularly if, if you're married, so if you're a husband, or thinking about being a husband or, or father, it's your responsibility to lead your family this way. To, to shepherd the little flock of God in your home. God calls us to lead our wives 
and our kids in the way that Jesus leads the church. Not being served, but serving. Giving our lives in service for those we love. Now, what's, what's the character culturally of, of dads? They're kind of oafs. They sit back. They're disconnected. They lack emotional intelligence. They don't work hard. They're lazy. They care more about their personal comfort <laughs> than their family. But the biblical picture is that the Christ-like husband isn't the biggest jock. He's the chief servant. What does Paul say in Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then how does he explain that? And gave himself for her. It's time for a leadership revolution. Leaders who humble themselves, who serve others, who give their lives. A, a revolution that says we're not concerned for our position, whether that's pastor, dad, deacon, Sunday school teacher, committee member. We're not here for position. We're here to humbly serve Christ and other people. Well, we move from this to the final story, verses 29 through 34. Let's look there. Jesus heals a couple of blind men. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed Jesus. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So Jesus now is on the road to Jerusalem, and he finds a couple of hopeless blind men. Grace ultimately is for people who are hopeless. As Jesus travels there, remember he spent much of his life ministering in the north in Galilee. He's traveling south toward Jerusalem. At this time of year, it's heading toward Passover, so there are a ton of travelers on the road. That's why probably there's a crowd with him. He's crossed over into the area across the Jordan. It looks like Perea or Perea here on this map. That's the, the area east of Jordan is what that means. And he's crossing back over now through Jericho, and he's going to head to Jerusalem. So he's at least within 15 miles of Jerusalem. So as he prepares for this final journey, he comes to this crowd, and no doubt there's a lot of craziness and a lot of commotion. Because a couple of blind men hear the crowd passing by, and they know that Jesus is part, part of this crowd, and they begin screaming, have mercy on us, son of David. Now this is incredibly annoying. There's <laughs> people screaming at you while you're walking by, and so people begin, shh, just, just be quiet. But Jesus stops, and he asks them what seems to be a kind of obvious question. What do you want? They're like, dude, we're blind. Help us see. So in verse 34, Jesus heals them. Now, this story is almost a blip on the way to Jerusalem. About the disciples' place in Jesus' kingdom, and we have these blind men. So we have this discussion for a bunch of verses, 30, 30 verses, for, about Jesus' kingdom and the way that leadership works there. 
right after this, we have the triumphal entry where people want to crown Jesus king. And in between, we have this little story about a couple of hopeless blind men. Why this story? Why here? I mean, hours from now, crowds will, will hail Jesus as son of David, king of the Jews. The same title, son of David, is going to be spun out of the crowd. They don't understand what his kingdom is all about. They want a king, but they don't know this king. So before we get there in the crowds, the blind men ironically see. Son of David is a messianic title. It highlights the fact that Jesus is the eternal king. The disciples are blind. They want thrones. The blind men see. They know Jesus belongs on those thrones. So where is Jesus going? He is going to Jerusalem. He's ascending the hill, but he's going there to die. This miracle is an illustration of what Jesus has just taught. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, as king, has the power to do whatever he wants. But he uses his power to save a couple of blind beggars, not himself. He could save himself, but he uses his power to deliver these men. This is the kind of king that everyone wants. A king who's powerful enough to dominate, to rule the world, but who'll only use his power in a way that blesses those he rules. And this is the kind of Jesus that we serve. He blesses those who are under his rule, even at the expense of his own life. So let's think again about grace for a moment. Why do we see God's grace demonstrated so clearly to these blind men? Because they're empty. Because they're hopeless. Because they're humble. Disciples are full. They're full of themselves. They don't yet understand that God gives grace to the humble. Remember when Jesus asked the disciples if they're ready to suffer? What do they say? We're ready to be in charge. They don't yet understand, but they will. Acts chapter 12, James, one of these sons, dies a martyr's death. Church history tells us that John boiled in oil, exiled for life. On this day here, before they get to Jerusalem, James and John are ready to rule. But listen to what John says when he writes the book of Revelation. He says, I, John, not your ruler, your brother and companion in the suffering. On this day, John's ready to rule from the top. On that day, grace has humbled John, and he's ready to suffer. How do we know when we've understood God's grace? We know we're beginning to understand grace when we're humbled by Jesus' greatness and aware of how unworthy we are of his love. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally and then we'll close this time in prayer.